Lord, not yet. Oh, well, there's somebody getting right. Get right with God and be singing right now, Lord, right now. So, if I got everything here. What's that? Okay, God never ceases to amaze me. I hope you never get to the place where you just take these letters for granted and, oh yeah, there's another one, and uh, they lose their, their thrill and their blessing to you. I uh, got a letter this morning from Malaysia. Thank God for that. Appreciate that. We've had two letters in the past ten days from uh, believers over in Poland. Appreciate God giving us that open door. Now listen to this. This is a fellow writing from Zimbabwe. It says, I'm applying for your cassettes which contain the word of God. I was blessed by the message I heard. It touched my heart. I started to grow spiritually because of the messages which I hear from the radio at the station MW, Radio Swaziland, where I hear your programs Sunday at 8 p.m. and also on Monday evenings. How about that? I have, I have no idea. See, that's just God. This is not, it's not somebody we contacted through an agent and bought a bunch of airtime or anything. Uh, so according to this letter, uh, Radio Swaziland is broadcasting our programs on Sunday and Monday evenings on the, on the radio. And just that's, that's God, folks. That's just the, the Lord. And this fellow's hearing it in uh, Zimbabwe. Brother Glenn, where is that exactly? This from uh, S-V-I-S-H. A-V-A-N-E. Svishvane. Right. Okay. Could be one to five hundred miles away. Swaziland, that's South Central Africa, right? In that, is that one of those cutouts of South Africa? Uh, right. Okay. Well, amen. Thank God for that. Okay. Uh, Peril closes mission in Panama, citing political instability in the area. New Tribes Missions announced Tuesday it will close its operation in the Kuna village of Pucuro in Panama. One paragraph news release from the Sanford headquarters of the mission said a trail from Colombia passes through Pacuro and guerrillas, drug traffickers, and smugglers are known to use it. Three missionaries were kidnapped from the mission more than a year ago by guerrillas believed to be associated with the Colombian anti-government group. Kidnappers have repeatedly asked for millions of dollars as a ransom for the men. No resolution appears imminent. January 16, two other New Tribes missionaries were kidnapped from a camp in uh, Villa Vicencio, uh, Colombia, about 40 miles southeast of Bogota, the capital. Police have accused the Colombian Revolutionary Armed Forces, a leftist guerrilla group, and the latest kidnapping. The second uh, taking was an apparent retaliation for the presence of U.S. soldiers in the country, police officials have said. So uh, people ask, they say, why don't they pay that ransom and get those men back? Because when you do that, then every missionary in South America gets kidnapped. Now, you know, I wish that wasn't true. I wish that wasn't the way it goes. But if these people find out they can make a million dollars kidnapping an American missionary, they'll take everyone they can get their hands on, and you just can't do it. And these men and women are risking their lives to go to these fields and tell people about Jesus Christ. And 
uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold out any hope of, of these people ever being seen alive again. I, uh, I would doubt if they if they lived a week after they were taken captive. But uh, we certainly need to pray about those things. So, okay, um, this is uh, almost let Black History Month slip by without comment, and I hate to do that. The uh, Orlando Slantinal devoted an entire section of their uh, paper on Monday to great uh, black Americans in history. I read that whole section, and I think they had about 60-some people in there, and 63 of them were singers, dancers, or ball players. Now, when listen, this is not a racist thing. Hang on to your hats if you've got one on. When your nation gets to the place where we're holding up as great men and women of history, tap dancers and blues singers, you're just about shot. I mean, if that's if that's your example of greatness, uh, that's the way it goes. Anyway, uh, their poll, their readers' poll for the following day was quite simply: Should schools be integrated? Seventy-three point eight percent responded no. It's been a terrible idea, it hasn't worked, and it's ruined our school system. Now, you know what's significant about that? There has been a complete and total attempt by all phases of the news media for 30 years to brainwash the American people, and I bet they hate to read something like that and realize nobody bought it. Least of all, I think the, the breakdown here, I didn't read the whole thing, but the, the response did not vary depending upon race. Meaning just as many blacks said, we don't want to be bussed across town into a neighborhood with people different from us that don't like us and don't want us in their neighborhood any more than we want white people being bussed into our neighborhood. Now, if you, if you think this will work, you have not ever held a job out in the real world. Because in the real world, people only mix where they're forced to mix. And as soon as they get out of that school environment, they separate again. As soon as they get out on the college campus, they begin demanding fraternities and clubs and dormitories exclusive to their race. Now, this is not a racial thing, folks. This is a one-world anti-God thing that was tried to force on America. And I want to read you some things here. Uh, two things happened in the early 1960s. We broke down the race barrier in the schools, and at the same time, we took God and the Bible out. That was the most disastrous combination you could ever ask for. In the in the third listen, the thirties, forties, fifties, into the sixties in the United States of America, you had a false notion called separate but equal, meaning we have we don't integrate the schools, but the minority schools have the same opportunities and the same money and fundings that the white schools do. And that was a great big lie. That just was not true. Their schools were impoverished. The teaching standards were deplorable. They didn't have the resources to get a decent education. As a result of that, there was only one way you could integrate the two groups into one school system. You had to scrap the educational standard of the white schools. That was a terrible, terrible mistake. It did no benefit to the black student 
who finally had an opportunity to get a decent education, now we said, well, rather than embarrass you and rather than admit that for all these years we have not given you equal opportunity to learn in your schools, we will just scrap all educational standards and requirements so it looks like everybody's on the same level. Now, the result of that is a generation later, everybody is on the same level. You are right straight down the tube. You are now graduating girls who have two or three children but do not have passing grades in two or three classes of all races. You are now graduating uh, young men and young women who have no moral standards whatsoever and it is not the fault of black children coming into white schools. It's the fault of the globalists running the National Education Association who plotted to destroy the school system in America. That's now, take it. see, I, I say these things because, oh, you're against black people, you're a racist. Not at all. They were ripped off. They were ripped off. We took them out of a bad school, put them in a good school, but made the good school a bad school so as to not show up their uh, previous shortcomings in education. That's exactly what we did. Now, what happened when God was taken out of the public school classroom in the United States? SAT scores are a good test to assess the damage that was done. Scholastic aptitude test has been in America since 1926. In 1941, it was put on the same scale that is used today. So the same test, same grade scale has been in effect for over 50 years, since 1941. You had one entire generation before God was taken out of the schools. You've had one entire generation since God was taken out of the schools. The scores had been stable from 1943 until 1963. They then took a sudden decline. Prior to 1963, there had never been more than two years in a row where the schools either went up or went down. But in 1963, they began 18 consecutive years of decline. You had never had two years in a row where the average intelligence of high school students went down since we took God and the Bible out of the public schools that has gone down 18 years in a row. The test scores went down. Now, scores are now so low that the Department of Education says this is the first time in American history that we are graduating out a generation of students that academically know less than their parents did. It is the same test their parents took. It's the same since 1941. And yet look at the difference between the two generations. In 1974 and 75, the chart took a marked turn. It had been declining sharply until 1974 when it began a slowdown and then actually turned back up in 1980 and 1981. If taking God out of the school was the reason it was declining, why would the scores suddenly go back up? A check with the Department of Education revealed that 1974-75 was the year in which private Christian schools started exploding all over the nation. For example, in 1965, there were only 1,000 Christian schools in America. In 1974, they started to grow. By 1984, there were 32,000 Christian schools with 8.5 million students attending these schools. And these 8.5 million students had such an impact on the SAT scores that the national average was pulled up. 
That means these 8.5 million, their scores were so much higher than the kids in public school that the, the countless, the, the, the 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 million kids in the public schools, those 8 million actually pulled the total average score up. That's how much higher it was. There was an investigation made with SAT. And according to the SAT board, who is responsible for the SAT test, the scores of students coming out of private religious schools are nearly 100 points higher than those coming out of public schools. Now, you say 100 points, what does that mean? You know what a good score is on an SAT test? About 850. A perfect score, I think, is like 1,300, something like that. We're talking about a scale of, of, of 1,300 points. If the average score is 100 points better, you're talking about the, the difference between a, a 97% score and an 84, 85% score. Average score on a, on a test. Now, it says here, that's the same point. Listen to this. The average SAT score by children in Christian schools matches the average score prior to 1963. What does that mean? That means the Christian school movement has given children the opportunity to get at least as good an education as they had before integration and before God was taken out of the public schools. Now I'll say to you what I said to the uh, assembly uh, of parents down at Deltona. Uh, the only option, the, listen, it's not an option as do I want my kids in a Christian environment, that's up to you. Do I want my kids, you know, to be in a, in, a, in a separated school with standards? That's up to you. But if you want them to get a decent education, the public school system has made it all but impossible for them to get the training they need because if your student is bright and your student is, is one that's capable of learning, they will be held back because the system has no place for them. They have no opportunity. You've got, you've got 30 kids here in your 7th grade class that can't read and write, and your child is very intelligent. That teacher is not going to ignore 30 children to spend all day with your child. It's a handicap. It's a great handicap. If you wonder why, you say, well, how come i got to sit up all night and helping my kids do all these homework, and they got all this work to do at home, and I've got to do it? You know why? Because, because you, the parent, are having to educate your children because the school can't do it. I didn't say the teachers didn't know how to teach. They can't teach. They've got a room full of hoodlums. They can't teach them moral standards from the Bible to get them to live decent lives. They can't paddle their little fannies because it's violation of their civil rights. And so all they can do is put on a bulletproof vest and hope they live through the day. It's wicked. It's wicked. Now, see, I say this kind of stuff. Well, i got to send my kids to public school. I didn't say you had to or didn't have to. What I'm telling you is the reason you as a parent are having to spend so many hours teaching your children what they should have learned at school is because our schools are no longer able to teach them. It's a riot. It's an organized riot. Now, another impact that private religious schools have had in America is an academic, the academic cream of the crop. This is called National Merit Semifinalist. This is the top one-half percent of the nation's students. What percentage of these elite students come from public schools? The Department of Education says that of all students attending school, 12% go to private religious schools, 88% go to public schools. That means that 
what that means is that 12% of Christian school students should give you 12% of the merit scholars, the academic cream of the crop. However, this little group of 12% of the nation's students produces 39.2% of the nation's academic scholars. That's phenomenal. Now, let me give you another thing to factor in. When these children go in to take an SAT test, if they don't answer the science questions with the evolutionary slant, they're marked wrong. If they don't answer the social studies questions with the one-world slant, they're marked wrong. So not only are these kids scoring 100 points higher, but they're losing points because they're giving answers that are actually right, but according to the test key, they're wrong. Did, in, what cent- or in what millennium did man evolve from the ape? And your child says he didn't, so I can't answer this question. They're scoring 100 points higher, and they've probably got 5 to 10% of the questions that are wrong simply because they've been taught the truth. And when they go to take these merit exams, 12% of Christian school students reap 40% of those scholarships. That's phenomenal. Now, what does that mean? It means the public school system has failed. It's a failed system. And if you, of necessity, have to have your children in a public school, you have double the work to do. Because you can't trust Mr. or Mrs., uh, I'm sorry, (laughs) please forgive me, Mr. or Ms. National Education Association to give them an education. Did you know that in, in our school district, it is a violation. A school teacher cannot fail a minority student in the first six grades. They are not permitted to hold them back. Say, why'd they start that? Because you had 14-year-old kids in the first grade and it got to be kind of tough at recess. They couldn't have a good game of of kickball. You had had them ranging from age 5 to 16 and it's hard to balance out the teams. Anyway, uh, fellow said, how'd you like third grade? He says, the four best years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, when this was shown to a U.S. congressman, he said... That makes perfect sense to me. When you're talking about private schools, you're talking about money. You're not talking. You're talking about affluency. Private schools ought to get better scores than public schools. Another trip was made back to the Department of Education for that same year. It was discovered the average private school cost is $1,100 per student per year. That's that's a lot of money. It sure is. You know what it costs per student in the public school per year? $3,752 a year. So why is that? Well, the cost of education. Paved parking lots, air-conditioned gymnasiums, separate cafeterias for the faculty. I mean, those things, you got to have those things or you can't educate the children. I mean, right? Or if you, don't, you, know, you don't have a paved parking lot with your name on the, uh, on, the, on the tire stop there. You can't really teach the kids. I was president of the uh, student government in my high school in 1976. And you ever drive out here towards our house? You see that little thing out there called Bicentennial Youth Park? Established in 1976. Well, they came around, some big shot from the school board came around to all the, the uh, high schools in Volusia County and said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to take your fundraising money as a student government and all of you contribute $500 for this bicentennial park out here. And I, I haven't always been the 
the mild-mannered, calm, ecumenical, spirited fellow that I am. And so about 18 years old, I just told that fellow at the school board, I said, look, we work to raise this money to have a dance, and we work to raise this money to go to Disney World, and you guys got all that tax money. If you want to buy a bunch of swamp land and have a park, go buy it get out of here. Well, I got called in the principal's office. All the other schools are doing it. I said, well, so they're stupid. And they said, well, you know, well, how would it look? And they have this ceremony, and they name all the high schools, and our high school had named. I said, well, that one shouldn't bother you. Just don't go, and then you won't be embarrassed. I said, don't show. And so finally, they, the, the uh, principal came into the student government meeting, and he said, he said, you will either give them that $500, or we'll disband your student government. And so that was the start of my troubles. Then the next thing that came up was they... Uh, they had to pave the, uh, the uh, faculty parking lot. And so we organized the school protest and said until they pave the senior class parking lot, they're not going to pave the faculty parking lot. We don't like having sand in our shoes any more than they do. And all this junk. Listen, I went to school way back in the, in the pioneer days. We didn't have air conditioning in the cafeteria or in the classrooms. And we'd sit there and sweat and sweat a drip on your papers and everything else. And the teachers sweat so everybody stunk and stank stinked, whatever it was, and apart from being able to conjugate the verb to stink, I got a pretty good education in, in spite of the, the facts. And uh, just just amazing to me, you, you, I tell you, it's just, thank you, thank you, I'll keep going. Private religious schools, one-third of the funds, turning out three times the percentage of academic scholars. The core curriculum is the same in both schools. The math is the same. A verb is not an adjective in different schools. The basic difference is one has God invited into their presence to illumine and enlighten the minds, and the other excludes God and forbids him to have any role in bringing understanding to their minds. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And you kick God out of the school, and you're just left without him. Now, yes, sir. Absolutely. And see, when they say state certification, that's a certification. They mean state certification. And the certifying board will be the National Education Association. So it's what they're doing. They're trying legally to get their hands on homeschool and Christian schools because it's showing them up. It's showing them up. What's that? Yeah, same thing with Lester Olaf. Lester Olaf said in 1976, he said, if you people don't wake up and stand and help me win this battle in Texas, you will lose the battle in your state in 15 years. And he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. Once you take state certification for your school, state certification for your teachers, then the state has the right to tell you what you can and can't teach. Right now in Lynchburg, Virginia, Jerry Falwell is teaching evolution in his science classes at Liberty University because he took state money for student aid grants and he now has to give, give equal access to homosexual teachers to teach in his school. You can't do it, folks. You just can't do it. And I'll tell you, it's uh, uh, tough Tough days are coming. I'll tell you something else, too. You say, well, it's those, those church schools are a money racket and everything else. Listen, there is a fellowship 
of Christian schools in the state of Florida, and they all work together for guidelines, make sure they're on the up and up of the state. Do you know what the base pay is for a teacher in a Christian school in the state of Florida? $6,000 a year. Don't tell me it's a money racket. No man or woman gives up a career teaching in a public school to teach for $6,000 a year unless they just want to teach and try and help kids to learn and do right. So uh, anyway, need to pray about these things. Now, in a related note, um, Dartmouth High School was not the place it should have happened. It was a lo in a lovely university town south of Boston where parents were yacht owners and professors, yet three teens burst into James Murphy's government class armed with a baseball bat. They killed Murphy by beating him with a bat. His only crime was asking why they were looking for another student. Three million crimes a year are school-related. Research shows 20% of students endorse shooting someone who has stolen from you. 8% say shoot them if they offend or insult you. Government can rid the campus of firearms, but what do we do with baseball bats? Also in a related incident, a, uh, a man was uh, a blind beggar, was beaten to death with a baseball bat on the uh, street last week in Boston, Massachusetts by two hoodlums that stole the money uh, that he had in his cup. And so uh, in light of this, I am proposing that we ban baseball bats in the United States of America. And what I'm proposing is that we have a at least a five-day waiting period for buying any bat over 28 ounces. And in order to keep this from happening in the land, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to offer a free milkshake to every kid in Volusia County that voluntarily turns in his baseball bats. And that way we won't have any more killings and we won't have any more murder because after all, people don't murder people, baseball bats do. And so we're going to call it the Knoxville and we're going to try and run it through Congress and do what we can to ban baseball bats. And of course, we're going to have to protest uh, uh, all baseball games on TV because that promotes violence. And when, when people see this, this little innocent ball struck by that bat with such force, it makes them want to go out and hit their teacher uh, with a bat. So I think that, that really, in order to cut down on crime and violence in our society, we should ban uh, baseball bats. And so uh, you vote for me, and, and uh, I'll set you free. And we'll, we'll get that done. So, Amen. Yes, sir. You're, you're probably right about that, but that's the difference between a belief and a conviction. I'm not really convicted, but <laughs> preference, yes. Yes, brother. Absolutely, yeah. You remember when you had a bus stop and you, you know, within a mile that was your bus stop. Now it's uh, at least block to block. And of course, they got to do that or the kids are getting mugged. Waiting at the at the bus stop with their with their lunch money, and uh, so anyway, uh, it's a brave new world. You got to admit it is getting better and better. I mean things are. Amen. Malachi chapter four, Malachi chapter four. Lots of stops to make in the Bible tonight. Do you realize? 
Well, I don't think any of us realize. I don't know how you could possibly calculate the thing. wonder how much money has been spent on maintenance, vehicles, and gasoline to bus children since 1965 to integrate these schools. It's unbelievable. It's incredible how all the, all the money has been spent. All right, on a happier note, second coming of Jesus Christ. All these things indicate that, at least we hope they indicate, the coming of the Lord is drawing near. You know, when we talk about these things, I always like to add to the remarks. We've got this mistaken notion in America that Jesus has to come before this nation falls. And there's no guarantee in your Bible that America won't suffer tribulation. And God says every nation that forgets him will be turned into hell. And Russia had the Bible and they forsook it and God punished them. Germany had the Bible and they forsook it and God punished them. England had a Bible and they forsook it and God punished them. Greece and Rome had a Bible and they forsook it and God punished them. Uh, you get looking over there at all this Bosnia business that's going on right now and the Serbs and the Croats and all that kind of stuff. Have you ever looked at where the, where the truth of the Word of God and the missionary movement went when it left Antioch in Syria? The next stop was the Balkans. They have the Word of God. In 4, 5, 6, and 700 A.D., they had the Word of God, and they forsook it. And war broke out there in 1000, and it, they've been fighting over there ever since. They had God's Word, and they forsook it, and that's what happened. Now, now maybe there were people... Uh, there in that time, back in the in the four and five hundreds, it said, "Boy, Jesus is coming soon. Look how bad things are getting here." And then people up in in Central Europe said that when the Huguenots, when they're all getting slaughtered uh, by uh, the uh, Catholics, they said, "Boy, God's got to be coming soon. Jesus has got to be coming soon. Look how bad things are getting here." And the Christians, you read all the sermons during World War One, up Christians in England and France, they said, "Boy, this is the end. Jesus is coming. Look how bad things have gotten here." And the fact that things are getting bad in America simply means it's our turn doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is coming again. People all the time say, well, where's America in Bible prophecy? I can't find America in Bible prophecy. I can't find the United States in there anywhere. So what does that mean? I said, it may mean by the time Jesus comes back, we're just another, another uh, place where God shook the dust off his feet and moved on. That may be all that means. So uh, you got no guarantee these things are the end as far as the church age, but they certainly signify the end of America as we've known it. And as we've enjoyed it. So, all right, now here's the question. Let's read Malachi chapter 4, beginning at verse number 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, capital S, U-N, the Son of Righteousness, arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, come back, if you will, to verse uh, 16 of chapter 3. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, 
and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Now, in these six verses, from Malachi 3.16 through Malachi 4.3, you have as complete a picture of the order of end-time events as you can find in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. Do you remember as we've worked our way toward tonight's lesson, we have learned some things about rightly dividing the word of truth. We have learned that, that the nation of Israel has an earthly inheritance, the kingdom of heaven established on planet earth. Their promises and blessings are material. We have learned that the church is part of the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom, whose blessings are heavenly, whose rewards and benefits are spiritual rather than material. We have learned that God deals with the nation of Israel as a servant, but he deals with his church, his born-again ones, as sons. We have actually been born again, been begotten into his family, God being our father and we being his sons. Now, the question was simply this. Is there a misprint on my Bible? Shouldn't that uh, rendering in verse 2 be son, S-O-N, rather than son, S-U-N? We're going to look tonight at the sun, the moon, and the morning star and look at these things prophetically because they are prophetic in the Bible. God told you in Genesis chapter 1 that the heavenly bodies were put there for signs. God put those heavenly bodies in the sky, the sun, the moon and stars, and the planets. God put them there to show you and to signify to you, to testify to you, that of things that would come to pass. These are pictures, these are illustrations that God has put uh, up in the heavens. Now, he says here, if you look at starting at verse number uh, 16, watch the principle here in the pattern. They that feared the Lord spake often one to another. The Lord hearkened and heard it. A book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. All right, as I was saying, verse number 16, God is dealing here with, with those that have spoken his name. They have professed him. They have claimed his name. They are known for their relationship to the Lord. Verse 17, these people belong to the Lord. They are his, and if you look in verse 17, uh, they are spared, not saved. Not saved. This is something in addition to their salvation. They are spared. Okay? Verse 18 these people have been spared. In verse 18, they return. Now, the return being spoken of in Malachi 4 is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. In chapter 3 and verse 16, a group of people who know the Lord, in verse 17, have been called to the place of reward where the jewels are dispersed. They have been spared, that is, they've been taken to that place of reward to be spared from something that was taking place somewhere else. 
When Jesus returns, chapter 3 and verse 18, these people return with him. The purpose of their returning is to judge and to discern between the righteous and the wicked, between them that serve God and them that serve him not. Then we have in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 4, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment returning to the earth. So the picture you have, those that know the Lord, there is a terrible time of tribulation from which they have been spared because they are sons. They are receiving rewards the jewels and heaven while the Christ rejectors are being punished on earth when Christ returns they return with him not to sit on a cloud and play a harp but to participate in the judgment of nations and the government of the earth during Christ's millennial kingdom it's a wonderful picture that you have here now in verses 1 through 4 behold the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud Yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves the stall. Ye shall tread down the wicked. So whoever these people are, they're with Christ when he returns in judgment, participating in his conquest, his triumph, his treading down of the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. What did we learn a few weeks ago in Revelation? When Jesus Christ comes back, that flame of fire comes out of his mouth to burn up his enemies. His saints return with him, following in his train. There's nobody left for us to fight. There's no battle left for us to wage. God's enemies have been reduced to ashes. And we simply tread through the ashes where Jesus Christ has burned his foes. And then the verse 3 says... In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, uh, come in your Bible to Genesis 1. And let's look at some things here. And we'll get back to Malachi in, in a few minutes. Genesis chapter number 1. The Bible says here, That God said, verse 3, let there be light. God divided the light from the darkness, verse 4. Called the light day and the darkness night, verse 5. That's the first day. Second day, he divides the firmament. Verse number 9, let the waters be gathered together, let the dry land appear. Verse 10, the dry land is earth, the waters are seas. Verse 11, the earth uh, bring forth grass, herb yielding seed, fruit tree, Earth broke forth grass in verse 12. That's the third day. Verse number 14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. Let them be for signs. Let them uh, be divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day. The lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. The evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, referring to God's judgment, God's wrath, God's punishment at the end of time, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. 
a thousand years is as one day. When God put the sun in the sky, he put the sun in the sky to be the greater light to rule the day upon the earth. The greater light to rule the day upon the earth. And God said that is a sign unto you. He put the moon in the sky. He said this is to be the lesser light to rule the night upon the earth. And this is to be a sign unto you. Now, in this prophetic timetable, we find four days of creation. At the end of that fourth day, you have the greater light and the lesser light in place, ready to rule the earth. This makes possible the bringing forth of life on the fifth day and the sixth day. All the animal life was created the fifth day. Human life was created the sixth day. You could have no life until these two lights were in place to give light and to rule upon the earth. So, if you count your calendar, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 4,000 years, here comes the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, onto the earth. He gives birth to his church, which makes possible 5,000 years, 6,000 years of life on planet earth. In Adam, all die. In Jesus Christ, all shall be made alive. Four days, four thousand year days of no life on earth because all is in the darkness of sin. Two days of life on earth because of the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. The light of the world, his church, making possible life on planet earth. Now, you know what that means? According to God's biblical timetable, there is one day remaining. The Bible speaks of the thousand-year millennial day, the day of Christ. In that day, in that day, over and over, your Bible says, speaking about a period of 1,000 years. Now, our present time period, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Watch what the Holy Spirit writes to the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God put those heavenly bodies up there for signs to show us the way in which God gives light and life to the earth. By the way, people ask all the time, Brother James, you think there's life on other planets? You read Genesis chapter 1. God doesn't say to give light to the universe. God didn't say to give life to the solar system. He said to the earth, on the earth. God's not going to let this universe be populated until this place gets straightened out. This is the starting place. See, man, evolution has turned the whole thing around. He said, well, this must be about the last place that showed up. Surely there's life way out there. No, you've got it all wrong. This is the starting place. The best is yet to come. I'd hate to think that God's been at this thing for several billion years and this is the best that's been able to be produced so far. Amen. This is just, a, I'm not saying experimental ground, but it is ground to test it. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, watch this, verse 1. But 
of the times and the seasons. What did God say in Genesis 1 that sun and moon and stars were for? Signs and seasons. Now, of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Now, this present evil world, this church age, is called in your Bible here and in several other places, the night. It is called the night. Why is that significant? When Jesus Christ came into the world, he said, I am the light of the world. But before he ascended back to his Father in heaven, before he went away for a time to sit down at the right hand of the Father, he said to his disciples, Ye are the light of the world. The church, is the lesser light that it's only a picture of the male deity. And all the pagan tribes of the world worship the moon as the female deity and the mother goddess. Close but no cigar. The moon is a picture of the bride. Now, during this night of the church age, the lesser light is ruling. The moon has no light of its own. The only light the moon can give to the inhabitants of this earth is the reflected light of the sun. And the amount of light the moon reflects upon the earth is directly correlated to how much of the world is between the sun and the moon. Now, Jesus Christ, the greater light, he's not here now. This is the night. The lesser light is ruling in his place. The lesser light, ye, believers, saved people, are the light of the world, and the only light we have is the reflected glory, the reflected light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the extent to which our light shines in this world depends upon how much of the earth, how much of the things of this world are standing between ourselves and our Savior. Now, Get Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22. It's just one of those nights, folks. We'll get through it. Amen. Yeah, you just watch that thing. Yeah. Amen. Is that right? Good. All right. Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 2. And 2 Peter chapter 1. 
Revelation 22, Revelation 2, and 2 Peter chapter 1. Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the bright and morning star. Revelation chapter 2, verse 28. Jesus speaking to his church, I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Second Peter chapter 1. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now, here I am in the midst of this nighttime known as the church age. And if you look around you, folks, that old saying certainly seems to be true, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. But I have within me a certain hope. I have been given, Revelation chapter 2, a certain hope. And my hope is that before the total blackness that falls just before morning, before the terrible burning of sunrise, I have a hope that I can go out and look to the eastern sky and see the bright and morning star prior to the rising of the sun. Now, what's that a picture of? The nighttime of the church age, prior to the wrath and fury of the second coming, there is a blessed hope for the born-again child of God. It is that which appears before the sunrise. It's the appearance of the bright and morning star. What does the Bible say your hope is as a Christian? We look for that blessed hope and the glorious not coming, but the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not looking for his coming. I'll be with him at his coming. I'm not looking for the sunrise in the morning. I'm looking for the bright and morning star which testifies to the moon, your work is over. Lesser light, your chores are completed. Step aside, the greater light is on the way. I look forward to that day when we just kind of step aside, the moon's work is finished, and it's time for sunrise in the morning. I'm looking forward to that. Now, the one signifies the character, the bright and morning star. The other signifies the time of the appearing, the day star. And there's always that harbinger. There's always that, that sign given. That's what God said. They're put up there for signs. And those of you that go to work early in the morning before the day breaks, those of you that have to get up while it's still nighttime and drive to work, as you do so, I want you to look out in that eastern sky and I want you to find that bright and morning star that's, that's speaking to the day star that God has given you in your heart, that's speaking to the morning star that God has given you in your heart saying, I'm coming, I'm coming before the burning fire of the sunrise, I'm coming. Your work as the lesser light is almost over on planet Earth. What a blessing 
What a blessing that is. Now, the Bible says in Malachi 4, what follows that day star is the full rising of the sun. The full rising of the sun. Look in Hosea chapter 6. Your Bible run Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Those big books right in the middle of your Old Testament. Hosea chapter 6. What an amazing book this Bible is. How it all fits together so remarkably. Watch this thing. Hosea chapter 6. Watch what these Israelites say one to another in verse 1. Come, let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. What did we see Sunday night? Healing as a dispensational picture. Israel afflicted and sick because of their rebellion to be healed by the Lord at his second coming. What did Malachi chapter 4 say? The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. What did Genesis chapter 1 say? Four days and then the sun. Two days and then the day of rest. What did 2 Peter say? One day is with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. Watch this. He will heal us. He, smitten, he will bind us up. Verse 2. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. What a book you've got in your hands. Who is the man that said it's not inspired? Who is the man that said it's not the Word of God? The man that never read it. The man that never read it. You know what you've got? Two days, Israel is smitten and afflicted by God. At the end of those two days, God, uh, God uh, heals them revives them at the end of that second day. In the third day, he raises them up to reign over all the nations just as he promised, and his coming is said to be sunrise in the morning. Sunrise in the morning. Now, watch uh, Psalm number 19. Get the book of Psalms and the 19th Psalm. The Bible speaks in the New Testament of the church as being espoused to Jesus Christ. Okay? He has chosen us. There will be a future day when that chaste virgin is called to marry the Lord Jesus Christ. That great wedding, that marriage of the Lamb. The church is now a bride-to-be. Following the wedding, the church will be a bride. Jesus Christ is now the bridegroom-to-be. Following the wedding, he will be the bridegroom. Now, Psalm number 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's what we're seeing tonight how the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them 
hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. You know what the Bible says? When that sun comes up in the morning, it's a picture to you of the Lord Jesus Christ having been married to his bride, stepping forth and returning to earth as a strong man, a bridegroom, coming to claim that great and wonderful gift that he wants to present to his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb, planet earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And, and when you become the, the married, the wedded bride of Jesus Christ, all that's his becomes yours. Now, that sunrise in the morning, the Bible says, is a picture of the coming of the bridegroom. So, when the men run out in Matthew 25 and they say, the bridegroom's coming, the bridegroom's coming, what does that mean? You're dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ. The bridegroom's coming, the bridegroom's coming. What does that mean? That means it's sunrise. The bridegroom's coming, the bridegroom's coming. What does that mean? That means he's not a bridegroom to be anymore. Now, watch this thing in Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 23. We're right in the middle of the Great Tribulation. Watch what he says. Look back in verse 13. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Well, what do you mean? Verse 22. Well, verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, known or ever shall be, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. These aren't people looking to get their soul saved from hell. These are men looking to have their flesh preserved from death so they can go into Christ's kingdom. It's an entirely different salvation that's in view. Now, verse 23, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible they should deceive the very elect. What do we teach in the book on signs, wonders, and miracles? It's, a, it's the rise of Antichrist. Signs and wonders, deceiving in tribulation time. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For, now look at this, as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Listen, that's not a bolt of lightning coming down from the sky. That is the lightening, the dawning of the light at sunrise shining from the east unto the west. This isn't speaking of Jesus Christ coming down as a bolt of lightning. Who did Jesus behold fall from heaven as lightning onto the earth? That's Satan. That's the deception. That's not, that's not the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ is like sunrise in the morning. Nobody misses that. Even blind men know when the sun comes up. That's what his second coming will be like. You say, how do I know this is the second coming and not the gathering of the church? Verse 28, 
for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. This is not a live body gathered to Christ saved from death. This is a body of death for, for fowls and, and beasts to feed upon. These aren't living people being gathered to Christ. These are people gathered so he can kill them and feed them to the fowls of the air. But look, see the picture again. Hosea 6, Psalm 19, Matthew 24, sunrise in the morning is a picture of the return of Jesus Christ to this earth to begin what the Bible calls the millennial day. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now you can go over to the uh, planetarium in Orlando and ask the stargazers about this. They won't have any idea what you're talking about. But if you've got a choice between a Bible and a liberal arts education, read your Bible. You'll be way ahead of them every time. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth. Even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain, although my house be not so with God. This is David says, My house isn't that way. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he shall not make it not to grow. David said, I don't understand all this. God promised it to me, but it can't be me. Because my house isn't like this. But he's looking ahead to his descendant. He's looking ahead to that second David. He's looking ahead to that one that would sit upon the throne, ruling over Israel and Judah. And the Bible says he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth. The rising of the sun in the morning is a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth to establish his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. And verse number 1. Isaiah chapter 60. Verse number 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, great tribulation, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. You see that? Christ ruling over all nations, and what's it likened to? Sunrise, the bright rising of the sun. Show you one more, Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. Verse number 20. Isaiah 19, verse 20. It shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. 
They shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. He shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. Now, God's Savior, God's Deliverer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever you look in God's creation, you can behold signs that point you to that one, pictures that illustrate for you that one. When you go out tonight and look up in that sky and you see that moon, the Holy Spirit of God can now speak to your heart and say, that's a picture of you. You're supposed to be giving light to the earth during this nighttime. Why is there no full moon tonight? Oh, because the world, the things of the earth are standing between the, the reflector of light and the source of light. And God, speak to my heart and show me how dark everything is when the earth and the world stands between. When you go out early in the morning and you look in the eastern sky and you see that bright and morning star there, the Holy Spirit can now say to you, you see, just before the end of the night and yet before the dawning of the day, the bright and morning star shall arise for them that know him. And when you go out in the daytime and you look and you, you see that sun shining in all its brightness, the Holy Spirit of God can say one day, one day, that little type, one day, that little picture, we won't even need it anymore. Why, those men went up one day on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and the Bible said suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured before them, and his garments became white and glistering, and God showed them a preview of the Lord in his coming kingdom glory, and it said he shone with a brightness above that of the sun. They saw him in his kingdom glory. Oh, Saul of Tarsus, he's riding down the road one day on his moped, uh, going to Damascus, and all of a sudden, this great light shone from heaven. He fell off his motorbike, and the Bible says his eyes were blinded. Later, when he testified of that thing, he said, I saw the Lord brighter than the noonday sun. One day, one day, that Bible says in Revelation 21 and 22, we'll be dwelling in a city that has no need of the sun, no need of the moon, no need of the stars, for the Lamb himself is the light thereof, the Son of Righteousness, capital S, because it's God, U-N, because that great ball of light and fire and life-given power in the sky is just a little itty-bitty picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something. Well, well, well. Lesser light to rule the night. That's our part. That's our part. Not to be trying to shine in our own strength and power, but to reflect the light, reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's pray. Okay, now, before we let you go, there's uh, a couple of things that we did not make mention of in this uh, Sunday night service to which you've just been listening. The Bible said there in Genesis chapter number 1, and he made the stars also. And he made the stars also. A careful reading and study of your Bible from cover to cover will reveal that 1 Corinthians 15, one star differeth from another star in glory. There are those physical material uh, bodies, interesting choice of terms, uh, bodies in the solar system, just like our uh, sun, moon, so forth, and these are called stars, but they are also, this term star is also used in reference to angels 
many places throughout your Bible, indicating that as the sun pictures Jesus Christ, as the moon pictures his church, so the stars picture the angels. Now this is interesting for uh, several reasons, and we just want to mention a couple of them at this time. While the, the lesser light is ruling the night, the light of the stars is present to assist the moon in its work of giving light to the earth. How this signifies the assistance, the oft intervention of angels during this, this night time of the church age as they assist the people of God, as they assist the saints of God in ministering the light of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth during this nighttime. It's also interesting that during the daytime, during the daylight hours, the stars are, are still present in the sky. They are just as much, uh, the stars are just much in the sky in the daytime as they are in the nighttime, but they are not visible because the, the grand radiant splendor of the sun, the light of the sun is so great and so powerful that it renders the, the stars unnecessary and they go unseen and unnoticed. And truly it will be in the, in the day when the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns in all of his millennial glory and splendor. Uh, the angels, yes, they'll be present. Yes, they will be uh, right where they've always been, doing what they've always done. But uh, they won't even, even be noticed. Won't even uh, come into view. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, his light will show out, so outshine them. His glory and splendor will be so much brighter that uh, he'll be all the light and that anyone would ever need. So... Uh, marvelous uh, study uh, in the Bible, these signs and these types provided by the heavenly bodies.